Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello and welcome to episode 805 with Kelly Thompson. Kelly has some excellent pro tips how to boost your confidence, advocate successfully for yourself. So you'll learn one, when self-doubt can actually be helpful. Two, the exercises to boost your confidence. And three, what not to do when advocating for yourself. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've mentioned, please visit us at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP805. And while there, check out some of our goodies like the Gold Nugget email summaries. And here's a bit about Kelly. Kelly Thompson is a women's leadership coach and speaker who helps women advance to the rooms where decisions are made. She's coached and trained hundreds of women to trust themselves, lead with more confidence, and create a career they love. She's the founder of the Clarity and Confidence Women's Leadership Program and a Stevie Award winner for Women in Business Coach of the Year. She's the author of Closing the Confidence Gap, Boost Your Peace, Your Potential, and Your Paycheck. Big thanks to Kelly for sharing her wisdom with us. Big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Kelly. Kelly, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Pete. Well, I'm so excited to chat with you and hear your wisdom. And I thought, for starters, could you share with us a wild tale of salary negotiation? Something that was funny or dramatic. You've seen a lot of this stuff. And so I just imagine you've got some cool stories here. Oh my gosh, I have to just pick one. I think sometimes the wildest tales of salary negotiation are was when I was sitting on the other side as an HR person. And people would come in and they would put down this salary that was just wildly above the range for the job. Like a quick Google search could have told you, hey, this is kind of the range for this job. And lots of times they would get defensive on why they wanted that number. And they would give you really unwork-related reasons. Like, I want my partner to stay home. And so I need to make this much money Mm -hmm. or I have plans to buy this house. And so I need to make this much money and just keeping a straight face in those moments. And I get it. You know, lots of times we want to make a certain salary so that we can have things in life that we want, but to use it as a negotiating tool of saying, you need to pay me this much so that I can do that without even having any reference of, Hey, this is kind of the range. Those were always really entertaining and just moments where I really just had to stay cool and calm and just practice that that poker face. Yeah, it's really interesting. And we had a great chat with Steve Dalton about negotiation sorts of matters. And he said, sometimes if you share those things, I'm thinking about sort of when you're starting a new job and when you share some of those things that could be helpful in terms of understanding your goals and how 
they might be able to say, well, you know what? We don't actually have the ability to meet that salary number, but we do have some cool benefits associated with interest-free loan for a down payment or whatever, but saying, I need this money because of this now, so make it happen, buster, ain't gonna cut it. (laughs) No, no, not gonna cut it. Okay, good to know. Well, so we're gonna talk a lot about confidence, particularly within your book, Closing the Confidence Gap, confidence and advocacy, and particular as well in the zone of asking for more money. So could you kick us off by sharing perhaps one of the most surprising and fascinating discoveries you've made when it comes to professionals and getting more confident? Yeah, I think one of the most fascinating things I'd found about really helping with confidence, and maybe it's one of the simplest, is actually how I open the book. I think a lot of times we think that we will get more confident if we follow a certain set of rules. So for instance, in in my own life, my rules were, okay, you need to go to college, you should get this type of degree, you should find this type of job because you know it's stable and it's going to pay well and you have promotion opportunity and you have benefits. And my family of origin was, hey, get married young so that you can have kids when you're young and you have energy and then you should you know, go get a graduate degree. Like there's all these rules. That's just my family's rules. And when I talk with, especially women, that's the majority of my clientele, they come to me saying, why do I not feel more confident? Because I literally followed all the rules. I took all the career advice I was supposed to. I followed this path, but why do I feel so bleh? And I think one of the things and one of the most surprising discoveries that they have is there's no happy when. There's no all feel confident when. They think it's going to be on the other side of a promotion or a title or a salary boost. And what they find is there's just nothing there. And so, you know, a lot of the things, what they actually find help them close the confidence gap and become more confident is to live a life that's actually aligned with their values and stopping and asking, what do I really want? What do I truly enjoy? And how do I say no to everything that isn't that? Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. So there's almost an invisible script or an implied assumption implicit in our operating mental frames that say, if I follow these rules, the result will be confidence, success, money, any any number of things. And people seem to discover again and again that that just doesn't quite come to pass that way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think it's just common because in the world of work, there's just so much advice. There's so many well-intentioned, hey, you should do this. You should try this. I know even as an entrepreneur, I still get a lot of well-intentioned advice. And so one of the things I really encourage my clients to do is really to stop checking with your gut do I even agree with that advice? Is this someone I should be taking advice from? Does this even align with my values? Does this even support what I want to do with my life? Does this even make me happy? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, well, thank you for that. And now could you share the, the main message or, or thesis or core idea behind your book, Closing the Confidence Gap? The central question behind the book is, what would you do if you had a little more confidence? And it really encourages to ask the reader to slow down and think about that. What would I do? If I had a little more confidence, would I run for office? Would I ask for a raise? Would I try to set stronger boundaries at home? Would I go for the promotion? Would I quit my job? I mean, you're, the answer I've asked over 500 women this question, and the answers are just all over the board. But the central question of the book is, what would you do if you had a little more confidence? And then the book just unravels some tools, stories, lots of stories, strategies, frameworks to help you put into place some things, some actionable tips that you can do and do that thing that you said you would do if you had a little more confidence. Okay. And this might be a basic question, but 
how would we define confidence and the opposite of confidence? Because in a way, it's it's a big word that can encompass a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. I have a line in the book that says, a confident woman trusts herself. Her body is trustworthy. And so I really define confidence as trusting myself, like trusting my my gut, my inner knowing, my nudges, and taking action on that because the actions of confidence come first. The feelings come second. And I think we can all put ourselves there, right? Where we felt nervous about doing something. Maybe we're going to hop on a podcast or we're going to give a presentation and you feel all the butterflies and got the splotchy neck and the sweaty palms and you get into action. And when you're done, you have the feelings of confidence. So it's getting into action that produces it. The opposite of confidence, a lot of people think that it's doubt, but I think that there is always a healthy level of doubt that comes along with confidence. And so I like to think of confidence as a verb. And so to me, the opposite of Mm. confidence would be stalling in action, like just being frozen. Okay. That's good. When you said confidence as a verb, I was thinking of a confidence man, a con man, a flim flammer, you know? (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Not that kind of confidence verb. Okay, that's cool. As opposed to just Mm -hmm. sort of hanging back, which which makes sense. It's not so much that we're we're terrified necessarily, you might be. It it could just be like, I don't quite know about that. Maybe a little Mm -hmm. later. And so stalling being in a state of not do an action. Okay. Well, so let's say we want more confidence. How do we go get it? So the first place I I like to have my clients start is, especially when they come to me, I work with primarily women in my private coaching practice. And they, when they come to me and their confidence is totally shot, they're also usually dealing with a lot of burnout. They're overworked. They're exhausted. They're not even doing work they love. They're maybe doing work that was delegated to them. And they just said yes, because it was the right thing to do. And I'm putting right in in quotation marks. And, you know, they just don't feel good about themselves and their abilities anymore. And this might seem overly simple, but sometimes when someone has come to me in that sort of state, I know I've been there in my personal life. The first place I have them start is to write down everything they don't want. You might be surprised on how long that list of things becomes of everything that people don't want because they said yes to it four years ago and we just keep doing it because, oh, we don't want to go. We don't want to set a boundary. We don't want to say no. Or we've said yes to be nice. We've said yes to keep a relationship that maybe isn't serving us any longer because a lot of times when women come to me and I say, if I would try to work on confidence and build their confidence, they are just so overwhelmed. They don't even know what they do want. So we always start with, let's make a list of everything you don't want and start saying no to some of those things. Because when we can start to clear out the things we don't want, it removes all that noise and that interference to help us get more clear about what we actually do want. What do we value and how do we say yes to the right things in alignment with those values? Okay. That's handy. And and then I'm curious when you're in the heat of things, like uh, big presentations coming up, you're about to ask for more money or a high stakes something, and you're feeling all sorts of doubt, anxiety. Do you have any tips for what do you do acutely then and there? 
in the moment. Great. Great. Yeah. So all the time I am speaking and I've been a corporate trainer. I've been a public speaker for almost 15 years and I still get nervous. So I just want to normalize that. But what I have them do in the moment is I like to just encourage them to not only just use their thoughts, but I want them to use their body. So some things that they can do in their body. If you ever see me before a presentation, I will be standing in the corner doing four count breathing, breathing in for four counts, breathing out for four counts and doing that over and over again. Because what that does is it can calm down our nervous system, get more oxygen to the brain and kind of get us out of that fight or flight mode that, you know, likes to hijack us. Actually, the Navy SEALs use that when they need to calm themselves down. Another tip in the moment that I always encourage my clients to do and I always do is to always have ice water. Ice water can also just calm down the body. So I really encourage clients to prepare. Like, let's have a plan for breathing. Let's have a plan for ice water. Let's get our body regulated because then my next tips are going to help you a lot more. The next one is just to like, just to notice it. I think sometimes like we get nervous and we get flushed and we feel all this doubt and then we start to shame ourselves and, oh, I shouldn't feel this way. But I have yet to meet a person who has shamed themselves into a higher level of confidence. Stop feeling that way. Oh, okay. I know. I know. Right. <laughs> that worked. Because <laughs> if you say, oh, stop it, stop it. Like it just gets worse. So like, let's just notice it and just notice it with a ton of compassion. And then let's just give it a name. You know what? This is doubt. This is doubt that comes with speaking up. This is imposter syndrome. This is nerves. This is anxiety. Naming our emotions doesn't give them power. It actually clarifies our language so we can have more resilience in the moment and go, oh yeah, this is just that doubt that comes. Then I want you to normalize it. Like, I think the statistic is 90% of people are scared of public speaking. 70% of people have experienced imposter syndrome. It is just so normal to feel doubt and nerves. In fact, I always joke with my clients that if you never felt doubt, we would probably be having a conversation about you being on the sociopathic spectrum. Like doubt is a normal and healthy human emotion. It keeps us humble. It keeps us curious. It keeps us connected. So let's get back into our bodies. Let's notice it with a ton of compassion. Let's give it a name. Let's just normalize it. This is normal. It's normal. It's normal. You can do great things while also feeling doubt. And then just reframe it. One of my favorite reframes is I feel a lot of doubt. And this is good because it means I'm stretching my comfort zone today. Mm-hmm. Getting out of my comfort zone. This is where the learning is happening right now. This means I'm taking a brave next step, doing something that was on my goal sheet two weeks ago. Oh, Kelly, there's so much good stuff here I want to dig into. And I was really connecting with the notion of, of not shaming the emotion. And when you said, this is normal, this is normal, this is normal, that actually felt soothing <laughs> as, <laughs> as you were saying it, as opposed to, I shouldn't feel this way. I, I, I should be stronger. The should statements, I've been listening to a lot of Dr. David Burns lately. Hopefully mm-hmm. he'll be on the show later in terms of they, they really do contribute to not the feelings that you're going for. Either you're the world should be different and you feel angry and frustrated that it's not, or you should be different. And then you feel sort of small or, or lame or inadequate because not only are you feeling a thing you don't want to feel, but you are, are doubly cursing yourself because because you, you shouldn't feel that way versus it is this is normal this is normal this is normal is just has uh, a calming effect right there mm-hmm. so yes i have nothing other than to say to that then yes all right. it does <laughs> <laughs> well, well then i want to talk about ice water no joke in the <laughs> i was dorking out and reading all about the mammalian dive reflex which is so wild that if you put your face in cold water, 
you will literally have a bodily reflex that lowers your heart rate. I have tested this in my office with a heart rate monitor because that's what I do for fun <laughs> and it's handy. So so that's, that's one approach is dunking your face in cold water. I have a feeling you had a different view <laughs> when you said ice water. What, what's your ice water approach? So my ice water approach is, and if you were watching us on video right now, you would see me holding up ice water. Like I always have ice water every time I'm even talking to you on a podcast. Because again, I want to normalize, normalize, normalize. I get nervous and I feel doubt even before I hop on podcasts. I have ice water. It just, as you said, it feels like it slows the heart rate down because I get warm. I get flush. I'll just be honest. I start pitting out in my clothes. And so when I have ice water, whether I'm going on stage to speak, whether I'm going to be doing a webinar or a podcast or speaking in front of a room, I always have ice water because it just helps bring that body temperature down a little bit and just slows everything down. And you have the proof. I've never done this on my iWatch, but now I'm going to try. I'm going to actually watch my heart rate on my iWatch and have a little fun with your experiment. That is good. In addition to the cooling, I think it also is the word somatic awareness. It's it's just a sensation that it's a little jolt like, oh, and just brings you into your body in terms of, oh, this is a thing that I'm feeling now, as opposed to you're projecting all these worst case scenarios or whatever <laughs> that could be unfolding from your mind. Absolutely. And you use the word somatic awareness. So now I'm going to go there because I actually right. talk a lot about somatic awareness in my book. In fact, one of the things that I talk about when it relates to confidence is I say that a lot of leadership development is what I call neck up leadership development. And I know this because I designed and developed leadership training programs for decades. And everything is, how do we build more confidence? And it's all in our brains and our thoughts and thinking differently. And when we teach leadership, it's like, how do we teach how to give feedback, performance reviews, ROI, look at the PowerPoint deck, the financial statement. But one of the things that we don't pay enough attention to that I I talk about a lot in the book and I talk about a lot with my clients because it's worked for me too, is dropping below our neck and asking ourselves, how am I feeling in my body? What is my body doing? What can I do with my body to sometimes rev ourselves up, right? Do I, I'm taking this podcast standing up because I know I sound different. I feel different when I'm talking and presenting when I'm standing up versus sitting down. You know, how do those emotions actually feel in my body and how can I just feel them just as you said, instead of constantly ruminating around what I'm making this feeling mean, like, oh my gosh, I'm not qualified, I'm going to fail, blah, 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 blah. No, I can just feel that in my body. I can breathe through that emotion. I can name that emotion. I can drink my ice water. I can change my posture to make me feel a different way. So thank you for bringing that up because, you know, really getting in tune with our bodies is not something we talk about in the workplace. And it is so important when it comes to just changing our level of awareness and I think ultimately boosting our confidence. Okay. You also mentioned imposter syndrome a couple times. Tell us, what precisely is imposter syndrome? Is that any different than regular or old doubt? Is there a different approach we should take when we've got it? Can you unpack that? Yeah. So I was speaking at a women's leadership conference and I actually asked that question of the audience. And one of the women just blew everyone away. She said, and I think she defines it best. She says, you know what? Doubt is just kind of an emotion that we feel. And imposter syndrome is self-sabotage. And how it's actually defined, it was coined in 1978 by two researchers, Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes. And the study was done on women. It is a belief that despite a woman's accomplishments, 
her credentials, her success, her accolades, she still feels like she's going to be found out at any moment or that she doesn't belong in the room or that she wasn't worthy of what she's accomplished. And all of this has been a source of luck. And so that causes women. And now the most recent studies, I think, have really broadened that to say, no, actually, 70 percent of people feel imposter syndrome, especially if you've experienced racial discrimination, if you work in a very gender dominated industry where there's certain gender norms or you work in a field like academia where brilliance is prized, that levels of imposter syndrome are really high. And it's just because of this belief of being found out or that I'm not qualified or all my success has been luck. It's this consistent self-sabotage to say, well, I'm not going to apply for the promotion. I'm not going to ask for what I deserve. I'm going to hold back. And sometimes it can cause individuals to play small. Okay. And if we find ourselves doing some of that sabotage, entertaining some of those beliefs, what should we do? A lot of the techniques that I use are very similar to what I just already described in terms of, let's just notice it with a ton of compassion. You know what? This is imposter syndrome. This is just what this is. It's just, I'm not going to shame myself out of this and giving it a name. But what I really encourage my clients to do is I like to think of imposter syndrome as like an umbrella emotion, right? Underneath imposter syndrome, you might feel doubt, worry, insecurity, overwhelm, excitement, and really getting granular about that. But I want to normalize it. But one of the things that I also talk about is I believe that I don't even like to use the word fix imposter syndrome because I don't think people need to be fixed. But one of the things that I want folks to be aware of is that let's also make sure that we are not working for an organization who does not have diversity in the room. Because imposter syndrome is more prevalent when people have not seen themselves in the highest level of of leadership. So if you're working for an organization that continues to have all white men in the senior leadership team, notice that maybe that imposter syndrome is not your fault. And it could be because, gosh, I literally cannot see myself in those rooms where the decisions are made. So I really encourage a both-and approach for imposter syndrome. One, if you are a leader of an organization, how are you creating a diverse workforce and psychologically safe environments where people feel seen? They watch people like themselves get promoted, speak up, make decisions, while also knowing that imposter syndrome is a very real feeling and I can also use some of the same techniques I provided earlier in the podcast to help me move through those feelings, because that's what it is. It's a feeling and take action. Okay. Well, let's shift gears a little bit and say that we've done a lot of the internal work in terms of the breathing, the the ice water, the th- thinking this is normal, this is normal, getting clear on, on what you want and what you don't want and, and these sorts of things. And then the time comes. Uh, we are about to advocate for ourselves. What are the best practices in executing that well? So in advocating for yourself, I think it really depends on what you are advocating for. So let's just use the example of a salary ask. And so if we are advocating for ourselves in terms of a salary ask, I really like for folks to, and this is coming from my HR perspective, come with the data. There is so much available data out there right now so that you can look at your job and say, hey, what what are the ranges that this should pay? So many states are requiring now jobs to put the salary ranges on the job posting so that we can get a sense of what it's paid. So glassdoor.com, payscale.com. You can Google your state BLS wage system, and that will actually give you- Oh, the Bureau like, of Labor Statistics. That I've gives spent you a, a lot of fun time there, actually, their uh, website. That'll give you hard data. <laughs> so like, find your data. And so I think if you're going to advocate for yourself, finding the data is always a great place to start. 
And then I think when we're going to advocate for ourselves, I think step two is really important to own what's unique about you, like own your unique talents. So if you're advocating for a raise, you're advocating for a salary, maybe you're advocating for a promotion or you should be the person they pick for that project. Own what is unique about you. Like what is the thing that only you can bring to the table? Because I think that really helps reduce some compare and despair. And then like list that out to say, because I am able to do these things. Here are the results I've been able to accomplish for the organization. I can't stress enough as someone who's been an HR leader in excellent times and has been an HR leader in the 2008 recession in banking, nothing is more important than to be able to communicate your talents and how that is correlated into results for the organizations. Organizations and leaders love results. And just, I think the third step really is working through that doubt, the imposter syndrome, just noticing that those feelings are normal. This is normal. This is normal. This is normal. And just reframing your mindset. Like I am worthy of making this ask. This feels uncomfortable because I'm stretching my comfort zone. And then I just really encourage folks when they're advocating, I just, I love to write things down first. In fact, there's some neuroscience that shows that when we kind of go through the act of writing, it's like pre-gaming. It's like imagining it in our head. So then when we can actually get to the thing, our brain's like, oh, we've done this before. I know my script. I have it written down. I've practiced it. And then make your ask with confidence. So I think just to sum that all up, it's really knowing your data, knowing the facts, owning who you are and how your unique talents have contributed towards results, and then taking action knowing that the actions of confidence will probably come first and the feelings will come second, but being clear about your ask, practicing it so you can make that clear ask and ask for what you want. Okay. And when making the actual ask, are there any key words, phrases, choice gems of verbiage you recommend we do or don't say? Oh, I love how you said don't say, because lots of times, and again, I'm talking with women who maybe have been conditioned through no fault of their own, that they shouldn't ask. It looks greedy. You shouldn't talk about money, right? There can be messages. So what I hear sometimes is tentative thinking, like I was kind of thinking that, or would you be able to blank? But if you can't, that's okay. So I would avoid that. But if you can't, that's okay. I even really encourage them to notice, like when you go in and say, hey, I've been taking a look at the salary data. And based on my unique skills of X and Y, I've been able to deliver A, B, and C this year. So I like us to take a look at my salary. And I think a salary of $100,000 is fair. And what they do is there's that silence that happens. And a lot of us aren't okay with the silence. So what they shouldn't do is jump to fill that silence. Because I think sometimes what happens is they feel the silence. And like, but but if you can't, that's okay. (laughs) So I really encourage them to avoid doing that and just allow the silence to be. Because lots of times the other person just needs time to process that. So make the clear ask and allow for the silence. All right. Kelly, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. I think the biggest thing when it comes to advocating, boosting your confidence, all the salary ask the conversation is just to be clear. People are horrible guessers. And so I think it's really important to be clear about what you don't want when it comes to building your confidence. And then ultimately clear on what you do want. I think it's important to be clear on what you're advocating for and making clear asks. So I often say that success loves clarity because our world is noisy. So the more clear you can be, I think the more successful you can be. All right. Well, now, Kelly, could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? 
So I, there's so many, but the one I think I, I absolutely have to go with is the Ruth Bader Ginsburg quote. It informs really my entire business mission, and that is women belong in all places where decisions are being made. Okay. And a favorite study or experiment or a bit of research? Well, right now, it should definitely be the confidence gap. That is a real study that was done by Wharton, who studied the gender-based differences in confidence and how well people performed versus how well they advocated. And as it showed, men tended to advocate a little better, even though women tended to perform a little better. So that's the research right now that I'm obsessed with and it's featured in my book. Okay. And a favorite book? My favorite book, the one that I have read three times, I've taken the online course and I give it away to everybody I can, is The Gifts of Imperfection by Brene Brown. Okay. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? Calendly. I I literally cannot live without Calendly. I don't know where it was for the early majority of my life. And a favorite habit? I love getting up and working out in the morning. If I don't get up and work out, especially lift weights in the morning, like I am just unfit for human consumption. (laughs) (laughs) We won't consume you. It just makes me a nicer person, right? Like It goes back to the whole body thing you talked about, the somatic awareness. When I get into my body, I just feel better. I have more confidence. All right. And is there a key nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks that quote it back to you frequently? One of the things that has been highlighted in my book, because there's been a group of readers who've had early access to it, and it's a quote that I didn't even think of when I wrote it, but it's the number one highlight in my book. And it says, a woman does not need to have a title to be a leader. She is any woman who wields influence. Okay. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Come visit me at kellyraythompson.com. You can learn more about my book and there's lots of free downloads on my site, including a salary negotiation tool. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, let's just practice some compassion. I love the tip that you said in your next moment where you're feeling doubt, let's just all together say, this is normal. This is normal. This is normal. This is normal. And then remember, take your bravest next step. The actions of confidence come first. The feelings will come second. All right, Kelly, this has been a treat. I wish you much confidence and success in the weeks ahead. Thank you so much for having me. The thing that Kelly shared that really stuck with me was this is normal, this is normal, this is normal, and how soothing that actually is <laughs> in the heat of things. So that's been one of my go-to mantras added to the toolkit. I find it very soothing when you just acknowledge, oh, okay, that it's not something weird or broken or unjust or wrong with me or the world. This is normal to feel angry or upset or stressed or disappointed about a situation that has unfolded. Okay instead of doubling your trouble, to acknowledge, okay, this is what's going on, and this is normal, so now what? Great stuff from Kelly. The show notes, the transcript, the links to items that we referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP805. Hope to catch you next time, and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.